Those seagulls signify the start of another Squiggly Film Club podcast. Indeed. <laughs> uh, it's, it's getting a bit warm, so yeah, we need a bit of ventilation. So uh, apologies for the ambient noise in this one. But uh, welcome to episode two of our new series, Squiggly Film Club. And in this one, we're going to be looking at Mary and Max. Uh, we put it to the public to, well, I guess it was up against James and the Giant Peach. Uh, Mary and Max won out. I think you might do James and the Giant Peach at some point. We're going to yeah. have to do a playoffs, aren't we? I feel like that was a really unfair thing to do. <laughs> I didn't realise that was a thing that was happening. I was like, oh, come on. Well... <laughs> Oh, Laura Beth is with us. Oh, yeah, hello. Well, I think the idea was initially, let's do a vote, but have the other option just be like a, a, a duff one and put it up against Sausage Party or Minions. And then I got worried, like, oh, I, I, I love our audience. I'm not sure if I trust them enough to not just purposefully <laughs> vote for the bad one to make us watch it. So we did two good ones. But, uh, I mean, Mary and Max is one that, uh, well, we will go into detail, but uh, it's one that has a certain significance. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm really excited for this one. I mean, uh, it's it's two for two on amazing films, Ben. Last time we had uh, It's Such a Beautiful Day, and I think I went down rather well. We're back for more. Indeed. It's a big film for Laura Beth. It's one of your favourites, isn't it? It is my favourite film. Of, of all, all the, the films? films, of all films. Oh, well, there you go. I mean, what a start! This is <laughs> how. Uh, yeah, we've got the 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 Mary and Max fan here, so we're. I'll just sit back and listen. It's a to veritable you guys. Mary and Max fan club. It certainly is. Uh, shall we? Uh, shall we count down and press play? Yes, let's do so. Okay, and a three, and a two, two and a one, and a one play. play. Lightning. We got the ominous thunder. Oh, you looked at that. You looked at the lightning. I saw. I heard the thunder. Big eye, staring at us through crackular icon. Very dramatic opening title. Do they still exist? Maybe. So yes, typically uh, lo-fi uh, text to begin. So Adam Elliott made this film, and a bit like Don Hertzfeld, who made. Uh, it's such a beautiful day. Uh, this film kind of arrived uh, against a legacy of tremendous short films. And Adam Elliott had made a trilogy of films that were very uh, thoughtful and darkly comedic, followed by a longer short film, which uh, ultimately won an Oscar, called Harvey Crumpet. So this was his first, and to date only, feature. Uh, in recent interviews, he's talked about how he wants to kind of do th- a trifecta of trifectas. Uh, three sh- little short films, three medium-length films, like half-hour films, and three feature films. I love the intro to the film where it has all the crap that, that your neighbours have in their garden. Like, in a minute, there's like a tyre swan. And <laughs> you see these at, like, car boot stations, you go, who the hell wants a tyre swan? <laughs> and then you go home and every neighbour has one. It's lovely attention to detail, the sort of establishing uh, shots of uh, Mary's neighbourhood. This is one of the things that I'm not usually a fan of in stop-motion films. You do find that 
a lot of films, uh, let's say uh, student films, they do often, they spend so long making sets and props and so they spend so much of the film just gazing at the sets and props. You look at the opening, it's often a mistake that a lot of films fall into. But when it's got this, when it's loaded with charm, like Mary and Max's, I mean, you can't do without it. It's incredible, it's beautiful, and it's just this fantastic voyage through uh, establishing as well Adam Elliott's style, which we've uh, we've come to know and love, obviously, through the short films. And obviously, Penguin Cafe playing in the background. Beautiful. Mm. Yeah, the music throughout, uh, it really feels like a score. Mm. It's very expertly selected uh, pieces throughout the whole film. And I remember when I interviewed him for the first time, he talked specifically about how he kind of couldn't be bothered, I think, with the um, the rigmarole of dealing with a composer. And so essentially he made like a mixtape for, uh, uh, you know, his soundtrack. Mm. And uh, did a wonderful job with it. What an opening line to a film as well. I mean, there are iconic opening lines to films, um, but straight away, uh, you've got the word poo in there, you've got dogs doing it. I mean, I'm sold. It's like, <laughs> it's like Christmas for Steve. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit, um, it's slightly, I think, different to his preceding films that weren't quite as, it wasn't so much like poo and dogs doing it. It was more sort of... Uh, quiet solemnity and bleakness um so this film kind of off the bat has a bit of a, a a different tone and i remember when i saw the trailer for the first time being sort of struck by that i was like oh, okay this actually um is not going to be too much of a challenge i mm. think for people um like there's a bit more of a kind of broader audience in mind but yeah the um the trifecta concept uh, that this film is kind of the first feature film of one hope. So I'd love to see two more feature films from him. Uh, and he's done two medium length films. Uh, he did another film since this called Ernie Biscuit, which was about half an hour long. And he had done the three little short films before. So, you know, he's over, I think halfway through this mission. Although, you know, one would argue that the two other feature films would make up probably more than half of uh, the labor. Certainly. They're made on, they're not, although they look like they're worth a million dollars, Australian dollars, um, they, they're done on a relatively tight budget as well, considering the vast amount of characters and props and, and everything involved in the film. It's spectacular to, to see uh, a film such as this pack such a, such a intense... Uh, experience for for something done so cheaply if you believe that money is everything ben and laura beth mm. well i think that the uh the budgetary issues uh around the film i think you can kind of turn that into gold sometimes you can kind of take you know a minimal budget uh or a kind of compromised budget and be like okay what do i do then with the resources i have I think Adam Elliott's one of those filmmakers that is very adept at that. Yeah, let's make some uh, props with wires <laughs> instead of full armatures and just have old men freezing <laughs> and just shaking their arms. The little erect nipples. <laughs> <laughs> We've got the squiggly chat open uh, for people to participate 
and uh, uh, so so far it's a couple of people weighing in. Got a message here from our friend Danny at Bintikins. I definitely sent text messages to made-up numbers to see if I would get a reply when I was in school. Made a weird old man friend from Harrogate. We texted for a year, and I lied about my age the whole time. What a lovely story. What what a yeah, shocking story. Well, not shocking if you know Danny. Um, <laughs> that's uh, that's fantastic. I'm glad that we're able to share that, if we, in fact, are. <laughs> I mean, did you guys have pen pals? Um... I've had various ones that I've bailed on over the years. <laughs> you lost interest. I'm just good. No, when I was younger, like I, as I got a bit older, like I think with the internet and stuff, and back in the day when the internet was like not really a household thing, it was just something that nerds used. Um, there were chat rooms and stuff like that, and occasionally you'd get sort of back and forth and online friends and things. Um, but no, it wasn't. An, I think the only like epistolary friendship I had was right around the time I started writing for Squiggly and it was with this animation enthusiast um, and then we met in real life and we didn't get on very well because <laughs> I didn't believe in ghosts <laughs> so that was the end of that, it was a shame But uh, Why don't you believe in ghosts Ben? What's, uh, what's going on there? Well hey, oh, maybe I'll come around Maybe it'll come back to haunt you eh? There you go Um I had a couple of pen pals. You make friends with somebody on holiday and then you're like, yeah, well, we'll be friends forever. And then you write one letter. And it was this kid who wrote me a letter and it was all about a gun he'd been given and how excited he was to have this gun <laughs> and go out and shoot things. Uh, and it was quite terrifying to, even, even at a really young age, to read this letter going, you've got a gun. You're weird. You uh, I, I mean, I, I could probably find the letter somewhere in the attic of my parents' house and and discover that um, hopefully that he lived in the countryside, Laura. But um, it was UK though. It was definitely the UK. Yeah, oh, probably odd. some like inner city. <laughs> like, um, but uh, the other pen pal I had was at school. We did this um, joint comic uh, talking about gunshots. Here you go. But um, we did this sort of joint comic with between the UK, uh, Belgium, and the Netherlands. And it was like a drawing competition in each school. The person who did the best drawing went through. Um, and we, I would draw a page, pass it on to Belgium. Belgium would pass it on to Netherlands. It would come back to me. And this pen pal, all he would do is correct my grammar and spelling. And I'm thinking, <laughs> English is your second language. And you can speak it better than me. And anyone who's read any of my articles on Squiggly will know that that is, yeah, that's, that's fair cop. Um, but yeah, they're my two kind of pen pal stories that I can remember. <laughs> well, interestingly, this film, and we've shifted uh, to New York now. Uh, one of the sort of noticeable things is a big colour palette shift. It goes from this kind of... Uh, near monochrome sepia slash poo tinged uh, world of Australia to an outright black and white New York with a bit of spot colouring here and there. But now we're meeting Max, uh, the middle aged man who uh, finds out later on he has uh, Asperger's syndrome. And this guy was based on a pen pal of Adam Elliott's. Mm. And the whole sort of experience was, and I guess Adam Elliott then 
I remember we, we've talked to him about it a couple of times. I don't think he considers himself to be Mary so much, uh, but certainly the dynamic and the um, uh, the type of guy, I think, that Max is is quite rooted in um, this actual relationship. I think that's why it begins with based on a true story. Didn't he say, like, because he obviously he took his pen pal, it was like I think the first time he'd met him, he took him to the premiere of Mary Max? Yes. And then he was like, what did you think? He was like, <laughs> I, th- I think he actually sh- he showed it he sent it to him and I remember he got a, a letter back and it was just a list of all the things this guy would have done differently which was very on brand for him he yeah. said. <laughs> he did eventually meet him I think he went to, he, but he hadn't met him until after the film was made um, but you know he had a lot of the same concerns I think he was getting older he was um I think he had like various health respiratory issues or things like that. So he did want to meet him uh, before he passed away. Um, and I believe he did. This bit's true that we're, we're currently in the, the post office, but he did say that he did go through the, the phone book in much the same way mm. to, to find this, uh, this guy from New York, this random guy from New York. Uh, to ask all these questions. Yeah. Lovely little sort of bit of pondering mm. from Mary as she's... Uh... Trying to find out where babies come from. Yeah. God, full of life's uh, mysteries. <laughs> so again, much like in our previous episode with Don Hertzfeld having a very identifiable style when it comes to his characters, mm. Adam Elliot also you know, has a very... It's very globular quality to all of his characters and it's one that definitely you know is good bedfellows with stop motion animation i don't know if you follow him uh, on social media but he's been posting character sculpts every day uh and they're absolutely wonderful they're all clowns mm. and each one is more like disturbing than Did the you last see the one today where it's like coming out of a hairy cannon no it's really uh, like <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> the symbolism. <laughs> Birth clown. Well, he, he, he's doing them because his his dad was a clown. Uh-huh. Yeah. He's got a he's got an an absolutely fascinating story, and when he tells it, I think we do we all see him in Bradford when uh, yeah. Barry Purvis was um, yeah. uh, interviewing that, him. That was quite the evening. <laughs> it yeah. wasn't it just? Uh, and Adam's telling the story. And we're all listening, going, this, this can't be true. This, this, <laughs> this guy wasn't brought up in the circus and then became a T-shirt salesman and then won an Oscar. What, what, what happened here? Um, and I it's, think that's it, the perfectly normal story of how you end up winning an Oscar with a film like Harvey Crumpet. Well, in, indeed, you don't get there for, for being boring. You have to have had an interesting life. Mm. And it's great that he's, put, he's pushing all that into his films. And that's why it's fantastic scene such uh, a personal personal work so obviously his short films um uh the the short shorts uh they are actually based on family members aren't they yeah in a kind of loose, loose sense loose. i know he said something along the lines of uh, that he doesn't shy away from exaggeration if it serves the story yeah um so they aren't directly i think autobiographical but they're certainly um informed by people he knew and relatives and um, i think it's all the um 
the little quirks they will have, like the fact that every one of his character has like 20 weird things they do, are probably informed by various family members. Yeah. There are all sorts of little uh, sensory details that come with the introductions of characters, you know, like uh, uh, you know, such and such. Uh, I'm waiting head. for the Adam Elliott impression. <laughs> It's not really an Adam Elliott impression. It's just an, a, a, it's a narrator impression. It's um. It's dead on though. <laughs> Go on, Ben. I'm trying to like remember like an example of like such and such um used to dress like this and would smell like licorice. <laughs> We'd go out and play <laughs> with the chooks and this is very kind of built up. Um, <laughs> you feel like you're there. <laughs> sort of in that sense of like when we have these establishing shots of the suburban uh, town in Australia what you do get from a lot of his films is in a similar way that you would say get a sense of distinct Britishness from you know, Wallace and Gromit films or Bob Godfrey films or things like that there is a, a distinct Australianness yeah. to his films that really kind of it, it puts you there the vernacular the you know um and it's one of those things that you can sort of see because Australia has such a small community of people that do stop motion. It's sort of his influence sort of spreads throughout. So if you, you know, like, uh, do you remember Percival Pilts? Yeah. And I was just noticing how much the background painting looks like the same yeah. in this film. And I think they both worked on Mary Max or probably because I think would, everyone yeah. in Australia that has a <laughs> remote interest in stop motion worked on this film. Yeah. Um, it was a home for the entire Australian stop-motion industry. <laughs> I keep forgetting this sequence is from this film, where he's typing yeah. in sync with the music, because I, I remember it as like a sort of classic cinema moment. I keep forgetting it's actually this, unless it's referencing another film. I think it's probably been done in a couple... I think it's in Populaire as well. Oh, is it? Because it's... I think, anyway, because it's, you know... Diddly-ling. Yeah. Like it's like a keyboard. Gotcha. Let's just pretend it's on Mary and Max. And <laughs> I mean, I think he did it genius. first. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love the way that he's opening up his heart and just, well, his mind, and just asking this tiny young girl. <laughs> you know, uh, there's no filter. And I think that's, yeah. well, that's obviously um, part of the character and part of the you know characteristics of some people that are non-neurotypical. And it's it's fantastic to see it so tenderly put together in a film like this. The other thing that I really liked about it in terms of the, the narrative structure is that it isn't this instantly and consistently uh, affectionate relationship. Like a lot of what Mary says triggers him and he goes and he sort of regresses for weeks or months on end. Mm. And she inspires panic attacks, and then, you know, as the film goes on, he gets very upset, and it, it, it's a really... I thought that there was a kind of realism to that. He followed me home after a gang of children shot his eye out with a BB gun. The cat with the one eye is a very, I think, Adam elliot I just noticed the, the snail called Hawking that's all, like, has one eye. Yeah. And a broken oh. shell. <laughs> Just going from that to, do you like chocolate hot dogs? <laughs> <laughs> I've been yeah. trying to figure out 
what a chocolate hot dog would actually taste like and I can't imagine it's great. Because also what? later on when he he wins um, he wins a load of money and he buys like a lifetime supply of chocolate, it's cooking chocolate as well. <laughs> mm. I suppose like, with a brioche mm. bun, you'd be all right. Flowery. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think by week seven of lockdown we'll know. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have been like, ah, oh, fuck it, let's see what it's... <laughs> You're saying you're saying about how it's so Australian and it is authentically Australian. Very, um, I mean, even the names of the characters, uh, it just really fits nicely. But there's a real kind of the same lens is put on New York here. I don't know. If, uh, did do you know if there were ever lived in New York? Yeah, it, was there any link with New York? I think just that the pen pal that he oh, knew yes. lived in Manhattan. I think that was the main reason he would he went to the states um you know to do business and stuff especially around and after winning the oscar and this film was i think a product of that a lot of meetings a lot of trying to get things off the ground but what he i remember he used to call the oscar the golden crowbar <laughs> and that mm. would get it would you know unlock the door to meetings with hollywood executives and then they would pitch these dismal um, concepts for movies. I think I've seen him separately mention being pitched like one of the How to Drain Your Dragons or one of the Smurf movies. I was uh, reading an interview of him today, and it was he was offered uh, Romeo and Juliet. Oh yeah. See, I could see why someone would be like, "Oh, well, this guy makes funny short that films." That would have been and- an amazing film if it had been done by Adam Elliot. Like I just think yeah. how dry and like, and then he died. <laughs> <laughs> Good. We're doing Romeo and Juliet next week. I think that's, that's, that's what we're doing. Oh, yeah, God. one for the Elton John fans. My niece is obsessed, or was obsessed, with Romeo uh, and Juliet. Oh, yeah. It was the film that was always on. I know every kind of parent has a a a single film that their child will watch again and again and again and again and again. And for uh, for my uh, nieces, in my niece's household, it was uh, Nomeo and Juliet. Hmm. It came to the point, it's like, well, would you like us to put it? Oh, no, we've, we've said it. We know we're going to watch. Oh, we shouldn't have given her the option. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was Nightmare for Christmas, so at least I had better taste. <laughs> <laughs> That's one we're definitely going to have to do. Yeah. yeah. Maybe if we're still in by Christmas. <laughs> or, or Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things about the character design that I also really appreciate in this film is at the beginning this guy is in a state. Like he looks like like dog shit. Mm. By the end, like he just gets wider and more and more like just horrific. Like the state of him by the end. Is absolutely atrocious. It's a wonderful kind of and bleak aging of the character as it goes. Mm. So uh, yeah, Mary's growing upwards and uh, he's growing outwards. It's mm. Mm. but there's also a little. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you look. Mm. Picking there's up also the garbage uh, and doing the robot. And now in prison. <laughs> <laughs> there's also a wonderful little. Like the, the the pom-pom that he gets given as well adds a little splash of colour to his life. Mm. So as bleak as everything is that goes around him and as 
as mundane as he feels it is, there's also these little sparks that you know signify, uh, which obviously leads to the end. These little sparks that, that the relationship between Mary and Max actually bring to Max's life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the uh, Stuttgart Festival, which recently, as predicted, announced. Um, they're switching to a digital format, and one of the things they're going to show in the free edition is this film. Uh, they've worked out, I guess, some kind of uh, streaming thing. Um, and they had an interesting description of the film, like, as a sort of capsule review. It was Wallace and Gromit meets Harold and Maud. Right, okay. Which I, I, I agree with to an extent, I guess. I'm not really sure if it's... <laughs> If that was quite the relationship that he's going for with this film. Um, that is the other nice thing, is there's nothing remotely kind of seedy about it. There's presumptions, like the shock and horror when her mother finds out um, that, you know, she's got a pen pal who's a much older man. That's right, Adam. Oh, yeah. Him on the moon. It's kind of like the uh, Peter Lord film. Um, you said nothing seedy, and then all of a sudden there's a naked shot. He's naked on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's never naked with you know the kid. There's no uh, grossness to it. But he's no. a he's a gross guy, and it could quite easily go that way. Um, someone who's not self-aware, someone who doesn't have a filter, mm-hmm. and you know stuff comes you know through in the letters, things that are kind of inappropriate. But there's nothing that. I think tries to sort of push any buttons. <laughs> the reading two books at the same time. <laughs> that is a lovely bit of eye business. <laughs> Excuse me. Well, what's lovely about these these early uh, letter writing bits is we're being eased into this uh, this Adam Elliot style feature because we will have seen Harvey Crumpet. We will have seen. Uh, cousin and uncle and all, all all the short films and they are all they're all biographical and they're all done in a very particular way and it seems that through the through the letter writing process that's what that's what we're seeing in front of us now we're seeing all these kind of instances of Max's childhood and we've just been introduced to Mary in a similar way and throughout the film we're going to learn a lot more about Mary as well uh, it, it's it's great. It's still captivating, even though we've seen the style before from a director. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think given a sort of long-form canvas to work with, that's kind of a make-or-break thing for directors, especially if they've kind of cut their teeth in short films. You really kind of have to prove yourself. And this film is so beloved you know, to this day some 10 plus years later that mm. he really did a fantastic job but the mum's freaking out right now so we're back in Australia uh, but no but he could also he can tell a story that has a lot of emotional impact in th- three to five minutes remember I think uncle in particular there's a point in that that kind of gets to me a little bit and cousin which was the first one of his that I saw had this real like pathos to it at the end I remember the sort of moment where he kind of thinks he sees his cousin across the courtyard of a petrol station or a supermarket or something pushing trolleys hmm. it's like oh, I didn't say hello 
and that had a nice it was a very sort of charged little moment i thought and there are the qualities i think of those films having less time to kind of reach your audience and hit them in the feels mm-hmm. um you're like okay well is a feature-length film going to be overkill is are the emotional moments going to be overstated um he talks about this uh, kind of double blow thing, which I think I think the scene is in Cousin, where it's him wearing a T-shirt that says, I yodel for Jesus or God. <laughs> and it, yeah. it's teamed with the line, and his parents died. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he talks about how he has he uses that quite a lot because he just likes confusing the audience because they don't know what to do. They don't know whether to laugh or be upset. And it kind of is like, ugh. Mm. reaction (laughs) and I think his films have a lot of that throughout and I think it's that idea that even when something horrific happens it's okay to laugh because sometimes that's just the way of handling it and the idea that anything horrific that happens in life is never one dimensional and that's always the thing I've always really liked about his films is that he shows utter dismay and and misery teamed with quite a lot of humour because that's how life works. It's very rarely black and white. It's very rarely just mm. misery. It's often quite a lot of misery, and then some small joyous moments. Yeah. I remember when he talked about hiring um, or wanting to hire Philip Seymour Hoffman to play Max, and that there were two films in particular he cited as being sort of crucial in that and one was uh, Capote which Philip Seymour had won the Oscar for and an earlier one was Happiness which is a Todd Salone's film and I'm not sure if Todd Salone's is an inspiration to Adam Elliott he, he's a, a much darker filmmaker um, but he's also someone who can create those things where something just really really bleak and yet really, really funny will happen simultaneously. And it's like your body doesn't quite know what to do with it. Mm. You know, in the moment. Like it's it's the humor of like, oh my god, that's so awful. Or something almost kind of lighthearted juxtaposed against an awful thing that's happening just sort of at the same time. Um, it's a tricky thing to get right. How did the noblets not become a series after this? <laughs> Like later on, when Max is sort of looking at his collection, there's one that's just naked, <laughs> naked noblet. Hmm. Should we start yeah. a petition? <laughs> bring, bring noblets. Poor old Mary. <laughs> She's having a rough time. Kid pissing on a sandwich. That kid is very Beano. Hmm. The bully child. I guess it is a sort of similarity the the level of detail um in the character designs everything's very jowly yeah uh, and very articulated i think bino though for me is represented by children that look like little old men <laughs> <laughs> who's the who's the bino artist or the bino character that you're kind of referring to is it kind of a calamity james sort of like Minnie the minx who just yeah like a really rough middle-aged <laughs> woman who had had maybe seven or eight children yeah and like a really and a slight coke or meth addiction but was meant to be what like eight you can see it in the teeth it's yeah. a, hard, a hard eight years <laughs> 
she was rough as ass. <laughs> well, it is set in Dundee. Sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, sad. Very sad. Lots of pathos. Lovely. Yeah, I used to like um, the uh, Calamity James. There was always so much detail on that. And he did look like he was, you know, he was on 50 silk cut a day. And <laughs> all the wrinkles and so many double chins, triple chins, quadruple chins. And yet then there'll be an issue when they all get together at school. And I'm like, well, hang on. He, he's not at school. He's 57. Why? <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things in this film that I like that come up in day-to-day life that i can't not think of mary and max with the bit where she's um on the table later on in the film mm-hmm. the that nursery rhyme song and that right. with that uh tony collette's obviously singing because it's mary but that that song instantly i can never not hear mary and max like see mary and max whenever i hear that song mm. okay and also i blame this film for my obsession with cherry ripes <laughs> Oh, is that it? Yeah, it uh, really is. I love Cherry Ripe because they make me think of Mary and Max. Uh, I thought it was from your childhood. No, I'd never had a Cherry Ripe before <laughs> this. They're well, a bit like Ruffles. or I think that's what they're called in England, but they're better. Uh, they're called what? what, sorry? Ruffles. You know, like, they're chocolate and they have coconut in it and it has, like, like a streak of jam in it. Oh, ruffles are kind of crisp. No, there's a Ruffle chocolate. I think oh, it's okay. Ruffle anyway. I'll Google it later. But cherry ripes is like just more. But yes, whenever I'm in the uh, imported sweet, <laughs> shop, they're so I have hard to, to get find. You some cherry ripes. <laughs> I think you know how like some kids are obsessed with America and American candies. I think I've always been like that with Australia. Oh, American mm. candy is awful. Oh, it's uh, hor- horrendous. They don't know how to do. They don't know how to do chocolate. I'm really Not sorry to all. any Americans listening, but. You really need to sort that out. I mean, you've got bigger problems, but... Yeah. But they do know how to fry things, and that's coming from an English person, so... Yeah. (laughs) But I'm kind of obsessed with anything Australian, aesthetically or food-wise. Because it was like a brief... Like everyone of my generation, my parents briefly entertained emigrating to Australia. Mm. Same with, like, James and all all of my friends growing up parents were thinking about maybe emigrating and how many of them went quite quite a few tried for a while and then came back um and like everyone in england and america i have a lot of family in australia as well Hmm. so i think it's just that that would have been the closest of a life i could have had Hmm. and i I probably would have ended up working on this film like everyone else (laughs) (laughs) what could have been I do remember when I saw this film for the first time, I was in an absolutely stinking mood. Um, and I just, it completely turned me around. It just sort mm. of reaffirmed a lot of things for me. Just one of those like weirdly bad timing things. And I remember just like <laughs> sitting in the cinema, like with my arms just crossed at the world, like a child. <laughs> I don't even remember what had happened. I think I probably broke it up with someone. Do you have your pet, <clears throat> your pet lip? All jutted out. <laughs> <laughs> like Mary. This like film Mary. better entertain me. <laughs> I did it. a cracking job. Um, I remember also, I actually saw it twice in the cinema. It came back during its theatrical run. Uh, the first time, I think, was Pod of Encounters. 
And so when it came back around, when it was actually like doing the rounds in cinemas, I went, uh, and Melanie Coombs, the producer, was there, and she did a Q and A, and I, <laughs> I won a Mary and Max contest. I forget Aww. how something on Twitter, and I won the soundtrack, oh, which cool. is a lovely soundtrack. I have it probably have it somewhere still. Uh, and I also won a Mary and Max T-shirt in a women's size small. <laughs> <laughs> so now it keeps our teapot warm. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe that was re-gifted at a uh, squiggly quiz. Right. Um, Your teapot. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was actually, yeah. Um, <laughs> my first time watching Mary and Max was at its... I think it was its UK premiere, although they had to call it a preview at uh, Bradford Animation Festival way back before Adam came and visited. Uh, and it was instantly ruined for me before I even went into the cinema by none other than Prit Pan, who <laughs> was another guest of the festival. He'd seen it in, I don't know, Annecy, Zagreb, somewhere else. And he... I was sat there going, hey, I'm, I'm about to go and see the film. Have you seen the film? And, you know, when you're having the conversation with somebody and you're, you're trying to kind of give them signals that I've got to be somewhere else. I'm really sorry. The film's starting. It's wonderful speaking to you. You know, you're a living legend, but I, I want to watch this film. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm here for. And uh, and I said, have you, have you seen the film in a kind of, would you like to come in and see the film uh, now? And he went, oh, no, no, I've seen it. Um, and... Uh, and this is how it ends. And he just blurted out the ending. And I'm not going to spoil it for anyone <laughs> listening and watching for the first time. But he just just ruined it. He said, it's sad at the end. This happens. <laughs> I'm like... I think I hate him. <laughs> now, that's the worst thing you could ever do. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't have named him, uh, given no, that this is... No, he needs to be shamed. <laughs> what a bad person. Yep. And so I, I have haven't had that experience uh, that everyone else has had watching this film of, of oh, that of that beautiful that's ending. The best bit. Yeah, yeah. We we spent some time with them at Annecy, and the issue that we couldn't hear anything he said. Yeah, I'm surprised you knew. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Like, when when he wants to ruin a film, is very articulate. <laughs> he really throws his lungs into it. Yeah. He practices beforehand. <laughs> He was enunciating and everything. It was incredible. It's so clear. <laughs> uh, I would I would advise if people are watching this film for the first time and listening to this Maybe podcast, then what the heck the podcast, are you playing? Watch it? the film <laughs> and then just listen to this afterwards with this fresh in your mind. <laughs> Look at this one hair. <laughs> she just made the bully cry, and she just gives the audience this grin. It's a little low. <laughs> fourth wall moment of a koala on the post that just looks terrified i mean in all fairness that's how koalas always look to me yeah like, but just that they just shouldn't be remember the sir frank video where it's just like they're just wrong <laughs> they do everything wrong they're the worst animals bless them but <laughs> god damn <laughs> how have they not gone extinct Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> this this animation of the mother the close enough. <laughs> oh, that cake looks so unappetizing they're gonna dry like styrofoam yeah. she's made it out of like wall installation 
Ethel with the tinsel. So much is done with so little here. And that's so beautiful, isn't it? I mean, just when you look at the mother swaying and her eyes rolling around, or the neighbour here with a little quiver in his lip and and the fear, Mm. there's... there's not much to it, but there's there's so much depth and character to it all. Superb. Yeah. And these look at, t- telling the story through photographs as well. These static images. <laughs> I mean, this would be a perfect film to show any anyone going into any form of animation from a scripting and what you can get away with point of view it's great for stop motion obviously because it shows you how effective because you can tell what everything's made out of and it's not like super super polished but i mean it's polished in its own style but you can tell it's stop motion which i i used to make a point of i used to make a point of showing it to um my students in the first year and at I've worked at a few different institutions and shown at a few different institutions and on numerous occasions it has led to the students coming forward and admitting that they 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 are non-neurotypical and that the mm. film has got a power within it that that has led them to admit that and to to realize that there's nothing wrong with that. And I always found that fascinating to, for it to happen a few times. Wow. Did someone complain once? Was that you who told me that story? No. no, I know a, a lecturer who showed it to students, and like a parent complained, but like about but what? these are university students, <laughs> it's not like secondary school. About yeah, I the content of the film, something about who went home and told their mum. Well, yeah, I, I, I think like all the things that you were just listing as virtues of the film, it was just taken wrong. Um. And yeah, it actually, it upset someone. But I think also the thing that it really stands out about his films and kind of links them is he doesn't shy away from just that... Sorry. <laughs> it's very easy to be distracted by what's actually happening in the film. Um, we found the Achilles heel of this podcast. <laughs> things like, you know, alcoholism, uh, like you say, sort of mental health issues, uh, learning disabilities, social disabilities, general kind of um, uh, mental illness, uh, things like Asperger's. Uh, I guess things- it's one of those difficult things with university now where you have to give everything a trigger warning because you just don't know. I guess, I, I think that... You don't know what people's lives are been like and what might affect them but that's the thing so that's an element of this film it's one of the things that it discusses is he gets triggered by things in these letters and they send him into these spirals or he shuts down you know and that's a real thing and i think i think where people want to seek out offense is that oh but it's got this kind of cartoony style if it was presented in a very um you know, realistic filmmaking medium or something that was, you know, didn't have little jokes or asides. Yeah. Um, Then we would be, we could allow ourselves to take it um, in the spirit in which it's intended. But if it's presented in a kind of goofy way with big buggy eyes, um, then it must be making fun of it. Mm. And 
certainly initially that wasn't the case. Like it, they, his short films would be shown in schools. Um, they were great sort of learning tools for you know people to learn about uh, different kinds of people, different sort of um, uh, dynamics, different uh, cognitive functions, uh, etc. <laughs> there is also the story about um may perhaps a more legitimate complaint i don't i don't believe so but when uh, every year uh you get two news stories you get the news story of um watership down being on during easter and yeah. you get the story and all the kids watching it and getting upset and all that sort of stuff and you also get the story of uh, how the sandman the uh, paul berry directed uh, short has been played in front of children um, at school. And it is used as part of an education programme, but people complain about how scary it is. It's an interesting thing because the whole point of horror films is that it's not... It's sort of You're sort of made to feel like it's meant to be a dis- desensitation thing, but it's not. It's meant to be a way of... In the same way, all films are meant to be a way of you enacting your fears and learning to deal with them and cope with them and become more mentally able to handle them. And in the same way that, I mean, Disney's been doing it since they began, they always kill off one of the parents, and normally in a really horrific way, Hmm. because it's meant to be teaching kids, which, you know, for most kids they don't really have many fears because they're not really aware of things. But if they're starting to ask questions about death, that's why you plop them down in front of the Lion King or Bambi or whatever, is so that they can start learning in a safe environment that people do die and it's going to be something you're going to have to deal with hopefully later, mm. but you don't know. And the whole point of there being more, like in quotation marks, adult material in animation is to sort of ask those questions in a slightly safer place. Yeah. So it, it seems a bit ridiculous that okay, Mary Max does deal more openly with substance abuse and alcoholism and sex in a kind of atypical way. But it doesn't actually, and suicide, I guess, but it doesn't really push it too far because it doesn't linger on any of those things for long periods of time. No, it doesn't prop itself up on them. and And at the end of the day, all of these films do come with an age rating for a reason. Mm, there yeah. is that. And I do feel like there is an issue sometimes with people not learning early enough how to self-centre or self-censor themselves. And it should start with children's books. Like, knowing that something is coming up that they're not super happy with and learning to close the book before it gets to that point. And the same with films. Oh, like, that's why we have musical uh, cues. Like, you can tell if you are you know are a human being that have lived in the world where there is cinema and tv that if the music is starting to ramp up something bad's going to happen it's why mm. you close your eyes or hide behind the couch or put a cushion in front of your face if you're not ready for it you do need to learn to self-censor yourself yeah yeah um and do a bit of research would it kill you to google the thing <laughs> i mean up to a certain age I guess the onus is sort of on the parents, but, you know, if a parent shows their kid, you know, my neighbour Totoro, say, oh, that went down a treat. What's another one? Ah, perfect blue. This looks <laughs> like... Th- like, that's, that's, you know, that's them fucking up. Uh, but then, uh, yeah, but by, what, ev- like, 11, 12, 
um, you know what you like and you know what's going to upset you. And it's there's a kind of element of like, okay, well, maybe I'll push myself to, you know, expose myself to something a bit more extreme with each film. And then you gradually become acclimated to adult themes and, um, you know. But it's, it's sort of up to you. I do mm. wonder in this film if kids would find it upsetting because it's so dialogue heavy. I'm not sure if they'd even connect. I think they what would. What's happening? I think young kids would probably find it their attention, maybe. Yeah. Not. Well, it's black and white as well, so which is, mm-hmm. you know, definitely boring. <laughs> <laughs> it always reminds me of like this because really the the only really sad thing in this is the. The potential, well, not the only sad thing, but the main kind of like pinnacle of sadness in this is the the potential suicide mm-hmm. element. And I remember watching The Illusionist in university, and there was one of my tutors had her like I think eight year old, and there's a bit in The Illusionist where the clown's about to kill himself, mm. and um, the the kid just was like, "What's that? What's that man doing, Mum?" And we all just like froze because we were like, "How is she gonna handle this?" Yeah. And uh, she dealt with it very well. Yeah. But it, you know, it does sort of. The whole point of things are to, you know, other than being a good story and being a form of entertainment. Otherwise, everything would just be, you know, the Smurfs four. Hmm. <laughs> I also, I do. It does sort of put me in mind of when uh, your film. <laughs> I may be not the best person to talk about this then. <laughs> as like, soon as uh, the the character appeared and the <laughs> little girl just started scream crying. <laughs> to be I mean, in all fairness, wow. that was my hope with that film. <laughs> like, it was always on the borderline between, like, I wanted it to be like 90s cartoons I watched as a kid that gave me nightmares. Yeah. Because they were just so horrific. Well, as soon as it happened, I was like, okay, I could see that. Like, of course, it hadn't struck me that it was a scary-looking puppet. Yeah. But, like, oh, okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I see that. I, see <laughs> I guess if, if you're, you know, a little sensitive as a young kid, that might freak you out. Maybe, I think it's probably more the way he moved. Like a Spider-Man. Yeah. Man-Spider. Spider-Man. Yeah. Important uh, delineation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's happening in the film? He's just won the lottery. And oh yeah. Well, and he's spent it. <laughs> and his neighbor died. <laughs> yeah. Because she uh was in a jetpack accident. <laughs> I always got really annoyed at Mary with this that the fact that she actually does get the birthmark taken off later on and I'm like, why? It's such an yeah. odd thing for well, her to focus the thing in she on. Well, that's sort of realizes right afterwards. Like what why? a waste of money. Like Yeah, it, it, you're right. I think it's part of the film that I sort of disagree with, but I think it's it is it's good that you disagree with films. Well, if you well it's just, not that I disagree with the film. I just disagree with the character. But it yeah, is yeah. Definitely but I, I do. I think the film, the intent of the film is kind of in agreement of like this is kind of why you shouldn't let these things like dominate your sense of self worth. Oh, if I get you know a thing removed or a thing changed or whatever, this will be the answer. Mm. And of course it isn't. And it's another great, like, people, like, observation of, like, the idea that you would obsess and obsess over one little flaw that you have. In the many, many, many flaws that she does have. Mm. And that, for some reason, you would focus in on that and think that that one thing will change your life and then realising, no. Mm. 
and then focusing so much on academia and becoming published and dating the greek boy yeah like he's so kind of built up um in her mind and to the point where she actually you know compromises this quite important friendship that she has we get we get ahead of ourselves sometimes sort of with the eye on the wrong prize remember uh, maria bamford had a great line about cosmetic surgery she's like i want to surgically get the part of my brain that cares removed that would be nice Hmm. there's two uh, Adam Elliot nods I've just seen I've just seen some graffiti saying Adam was here on the subway train <laughs> but earlier on in the graveyard in the graveyard there was uh, an Adam Elliot tombstone <laughs> I don't notice that yeah uh, it's quite prominent as well <laughs> I would say that Speaking with Adam several times over the years, um, he's a huge part of my book. Uh, I was so happy that he made an independent film after mm. this because it was like when I started, it was like, oh, it would be such, it was so great if I could have talked about Adam Elliot. And then he made Ernie Biscuit. I'm like, I can, and I'll talk about all those other films while I'm at it. <laughs> and I think if you kind of put it all together, there's like a good 10,000 words just on Adam Elliot's films. Um, and there were quite a few interviews that that was sort of based on, and some of them were up on the site. Uh, I think you interviewed him when he did Ernie Biscuit. Yeah. Um, and he's a joy to talk to, and he's got a really inspirational spirit. But he can also... <laughs> some of the sadness in his films, sometimes you get from him as well. And, mm. you know, it's that similar thing of what you were describing about being something that's simultaneously a gag, but also a bit like a... Like the tombstone, for example, um, and uh, he had a, he had a few uh, zingers when he did that talk with Barry Purvis, <laughs> and uh, you know, God love them both. They brought out quality in one another. Um, I mean, they're both you know incredibly talented stop motion filmmakers that have a great deal in common in a lot of respects. Mm. Um, but there were a couple of moments of that talk uh, that uh, you know. Uh, Q&A that I remember feeling like oh come on <laughs> I remember just sitting there like with my mouth open and just like a single tear rolling down my face <laughs> just like continuously throughout the thing like oh god is this what the industry I've decided to work in is like <laughs> just utter misery and like even at the joyous of moments still a little bit like but it's not this is it well, it was the, the the line that has stuck with me, and I'm sure I've, I've mentioned this in other podcasts, but it's it stuck with me to this day, as in <laughs> Adam Elliot saying to Barry, you know, Barry, do you ever look at all your awards and think, why aren't I happy? <laughs> <laughs> so he sort of forgot there was a whole audience of like, students in history. <laughs> oh, Jesus, this he, is an Oscar winner. <laughs> you also remember he doesn't remember this? Yeah, yeah. but we talked to, to him after. It's like, I, I talked to Barry <laughs> <laughs> well, he was off. He was absolutely off his head on painkillers. He, when he yeah, was coming yeah. over on the flight, uh, he uh, he needed a root canal. Yeah, his tooth exploded. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny to laugh That's at, isn't good. it? That, how did that not make it into the next film when Ernie has to go over to? Is it Italy or Paris? He goes to. It's Paris, isn't it? Is Italy. It? He does. He does take a flight. Yeah. 
and how did his teeth not explode? Yeah, like that. That's, that should go in. The that film. should have been Just in the film. Explosion. Mm. It's only because it happened to someone pressure. else as well, didn't it? Who was also Australian? Who is also a stop motion animator? I was like, what is wrong with your dentistry? <laughs> oh, was that Michael? Yeah. Oh. Did Michael work on this? No, no. I don't think so. Do you think as uh, like are we trying to? Dif- discover if there was a curse of of Mary and Max where people's just, teeth are just exploding in their heads. Is that... I just don't think Australian dentistry is very good. No. I think if you go to Australia, you get your teeth sorted here and then go. No. Well, uh, I, I, I can anyone around the world listening going, wow, that's rich coming from English people. <laughs> Given... <laughs> yeah, but our teeth don't explode on planes. That's true. I'm that's sure true. they could. <laughs> <laughs> Tea and teeth. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I like how you put the brakes on that laughter halfway through. <laughs> so this is quite poignant, isn't it? You know, yeah. Mary's going through something quite devastating, and she's sending, she's sending Max the tears for him to know what it's like to cry. See, this is like a visual representation of what we were just saying about being able to self-soothe. Mm. Self-soothe, yeah. And being able to self, like, go, okay, it's getting to a point where I know I'm going to be stressed out, I'm going to have a break now. Yeah. So I've been uh, trying to uh, solicit on the chat room and on Twitter a few comments. Uh, and I got um, uh, Danny again. I said, <laughs> why is this film so awesome? And she says, I don't know why I like it. It's heartbreaking and melancholy and ugly and rough, but really affirming and sweet and hopeful. I think she just answered her own question. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking aloud. Hmm. I I will say I've never managed to watch this film without crying, so I'm interested to see if I do whilst we're talking about it. Ah. Because normally I do have a, a full, like, nobody fucking talk. (laughs) <laughs> one of the nice things just remembering um, Adam Elliott's talk at Bradford that really made me uh, cringe as I was uh, embarking on my PhD at the time was the fact that he said that when they finished the film I said oh what happened to all the sets and well we put them all in a big skip and set fire to them. See, I remember this too and being absolutely horrified, but cut to, what, mm, six years later, I am totally on board with the burning of everything. Because <laughs> I kind of want to burn everything I've ever touched. I, I think it was that he, he had burned everything from his previous films, and people knew it, working on Mary and Max, and like, Adam... Now you're not going to burn all the puppets on you. It's like, no! no! <laughs> They're like, okay, and At it's midnight, a rat. Midnight dressed in <laughs> black. Just like, just like tears in his eyes and a huge, huge bonfire <laughs> a la like Wicker Man. Oh, the I, thing is, though, I, can com- I now can completely understand why. And I would have, like, like I said, six years ago, I was completely on your side of like, how could he do this? But these puppets will not have been built to last. Oh yeah, they would like maybe if he'd kept some of the mold, you could like press them out in like resin or something and paint them up, which he probably someone probably did do, knowing him, <laughs> knowing he was probably going to burn everything. 
But, like, he has that other story about the fact that the f- first film he made, he made at uni, and his old, like, head of art school still has her- his puppet on her desk, and every time he goes back to give, like, a talk or see the school or whatever, she he can just see it crumbling bit by bit on mm. her desk, and he's like, can I just take that to fix or burn? <laughs> and she's just like, no, no, and it's just like, he's, he, he can see his own mortality in it. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I've, that's one is what I think sort of differentiates, especially independent stop motion films, to any other form of animation. Is that these things exist? They are a part of you. They've got your fingerprints in them, and your sweat and your tear and your swear words embedded in every layer. So really, as the uh, parent, you can do whatever the fuck you want. And if you <laughs> want to throw it at a wall, you should be able to throw it at a wall. And if you want to melt it down to toxic sludge then fair enough well i i think it all belongs in a big big animation museum no just behind glass we save forever but no you're you're right i think uh there has to be it belongs to the creator and it's up to them in, entirely what they do with it especially when that, it's something so biographical because yeah. you know even though he you know he says that it's not like true to life so much of him is in everyone and people he loves and people he knows are in these films so he really does need to be able to process them it's you know as part of his own psychological well-being oh there's not a frame in this that he's not that he's not a part of yeah you you can see him even the text and the font you can see him writing those for the books and you can imagine it quite you know uh with, without you? much of a leap of the imagination i'm not sure that he did it but i i think it's closer than most things did you know why or did you like when you've been talking to him here like why all his stuff has this kind of wobble to it because I just read this and I didn't know this before. Uh, remind me. He has like a neurological condition, which means that his hands sometimes shake. And so some people people think it's him being nervous, but actually it just sort of comes on. Oh, yeah. So everything. It does ring a bell. So his writing and stuff and his drawings and thus his designs all have a bit of a wobble to them. Ah, so they kind of translate yeah. that with the sculpts. So it's such an interesting subject, like, from kind of neurological point of view of like seeing that so thickly in his uh, in mm. his design style the state of her I know. <laughs> like why does she it. now look like a middle aged woman <laughs> I think she, she sort of like glammed herself up but that hair um, is so confusing because it makes her look like a man it's 1988 so I mean yeah, uh, I mean it would have worked really <laughs> you would have thought one of the that things moon is really disturbing me. <laughs> like the texture of the moon makes me feel a bit nauseous because it looks like what? that. It looks like that thing with the holes. Oh, yeah, ah, that didn't right. used to bother you. I, I, it's just idea. Uh, it's like a crumpet moon. Yeah, but I don't. It's when they cut. It's sort of coming out again. <laughs> okay. It's like it's like it's all right if the holes are just inwards, but it's that the holes that look like they're slightly beveled on the edges, okay. like the weird like skin condition that isn't a real thing, but someone did. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah. that was good to know. <laughs> See, now, now you know to avoid those when you're watching um, movies. Yeah, whole, whole hands. I don't know if it was Barry or if it was Adam going back to the uh, talking about discarding things. I think it was, uh, I can't remember who it was who said that they threw away all their awards as well. It was Barry. Was it Barry? Yeah. And, and, and Adam 
reflected then and said that for him his awards are like looking at you know good bottles of wine he remembers going to these particular festivals or these particular events or the films and see and those are little keepsakes almost of of the time that that that, that film spent on the circuit are we going to a slightly darker place now in the film the mother accidentally killing herself among the taxidermy necking embalming fluid with these quite really? comedically designed dead birds sort of looking so on but with very dramatic <laughs> sinister cinematography the lighting in this film is amazing which I know is our go-to for like when a film isn't that good but as an added bonus the lighting in this film is really good yeah well I do think that there there are qualities about the like the budget I think does shine through in certain elements when you if you were to watch this and then watch Ernie Biscuit which came after um, it's not that that film like comes off as low production values but it does come off as a more auteur affair and more of a you can see I think where the economics are mm. of the production and certainly there's I think more restrained movement um and I, I think he actually had more of a kind of hand in the animation itself, but the level of articulation of the puppets, for example, I think is comparatively simple um, next to Mary and Max. And I think also, to an extent, some of the um, the actual camera and lighting stuff itself. Um, actually, you need to rewatch it. It's been a little while. Mm. Um, but I think, that, I think the lighting in it is fine. I'm not, like, just... <laughs> arbitrarily shooting on it but I think in this there's more of a sense of I don't know it's more evocative of mood perhaps when it's called upon hmm another review here uh, it, from uh, uh, Ewan Horn Green if anyone is interested in having their heart broken then knitted back together again and laughing all the way through the experience this is the movie I would say that's uh very uh, bang on. Although, I kind of feel like the main heartbreaking sort of happens, like, right at the end. And the knitting, like, the, it's a pretty good, I guess, knitting job right at the end. It happens, you know, all within... Is that simultaneously sad, yeah. happy? Sad yeah, it's, the sad bit wait. doesn't really get me. It's the happy bit that's like, oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, God, we've made a dent in this. It's um, there's only like twenty minutes left. So Mary's now grown up. She's firmly Tony Collette, with all <laughs> of the world weariness that Tony Collette brings. Uh, she's someone who, as a performer, has just gone up and up and up in my estimation. She's amazing. She'd been in, you know, obviously some big films like Sixth Sense and stuff, but. Since, you know, more recently she's been in some amazing shows and uh, movies. I just noticed Mary does that thing where she puts, sticks her tongue out still. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's Into <a> adulthood. <laughs> nice. Oh, so this is him finding out that, um, yeah, she's written a book about him but never actually told him. And uh, it doesn't go very well. I wonder if this is sort of based on Adam's 
Fear. worries about making a film about the guy. I'm sure um, we talked about it at the time, but... Um, it would be pretty bold of him to, if, if this is the way he gets through it, by just actually <laughs> doing it and then showing the guy. <laughs> like, if I acknowledge so the way, it... The way the guy goes crazy, is that how you'd go crazy? Is that, oh, uh, did I hit the nail on the head? <laughs> I think I found this, like, this is the first proper stomach punch moment because the idea of doing something thinking you're being not even thinking remotely that it could be a thing that's upsetting if anything you think oh he may be a little bit flattered that he's like the subject of a book and to have just got it so powerfully wrong Mm. it's probably one of my worst fears actually Mm. is upsetting someone that I care about a lot purely by accident or purely from just not realising or yeah being sort of complacent about something but it's not even complacent like I I still don't I mean I understand that he's upset but I still don't really understand why I do in this I do obviously because he sort of spells it out but I could completely sympathise with Mary in the sense that like you wouldn't think like but you do have this condition and I furthered the I think it's that it's about him specifically, sort of by name. Like, he's on the cover of the book, and I think that it's presents a big to him this thing of, like, oh, this is what our friendship has been about. It's then. a big ethical no-no. And that's not what it was, as far as her intent. No, she just um, he was she just, just the most interesting thing in his life, in her life. And so she is very grimly, immediately pulps every one of her books. Bit of an Alan Before Partridge the uh, moment. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, another, uh, I might have read this one out. Maybe uh, only animation animation could magic up something as wonderful as this. Did I say that one earlier on? Uh, no, I don't think so. No. Well, I'm saying it uh, because <laughs> did you guys know there was a Mary and Max musical? No. What? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, the there is mm. a uh, Mary and Max musical, and it doesn't look too bad. It looks quite interesting, quite entertaining. They've mm. gone all out, uh, caricatured the the designs and everything, and they've gone for the the poo birthmark and everything. They've got they've got all the details. Uh, <laughs> it it looks interesting. It it's it was playing a couple of years ago. And it is based closely on the film, but only with musical interludes. If you can get up um, YouTube, I think uh, Theatre Calgary has a few trailers and videos <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> I found mm. a, a still. Yeah. The earnestness of the guitar player is making me feel a bit sick. <laughs> I mean, the earnestness of any guitar player can make uh, anyone feel sick. I, think. I mean, that's good casting for Mary. <laughs> in all fairness like that photo is amazing go up one that look at that mm. Crystal Skillman I guess played her in Austria because it's uh, being performed the world over Mary Undermax well there you go it's a squiggly field trip <laughs> on the cards <laughs> down the line yeah so yeah we're uh, we're reaching Mary's uh, Nadia. Max is now just a flying saucer shape. <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing I love about 
the film as well is that there are bits breadcrumbed all the way through that link to other aspects of the film hmm. and it's a real animator's animation sure. like it's got lots of little easter eggs and breadcrumbs of things and foreshadowing and hmm. that is just really pleasing <laughs> yeah i found it quite sad the way that she be well she becomes a mum yes yeah yeah, yeah. Another nice bit of the um, well-chosen music here. Mm. I think the song was quite prominently in that Joker movie. If I'm not mistaken. It's one of those like happy songs that just feels like elevator music. So it's kind of inherently bleak. Like it's a good accompaniment to scenes of despair. I think what's quite amazing is he's used quite well-trodden songs. Mm. And somehow it's not, like, tacky or eye-rolly. Well, it's had the the effect, and maybe this is because, like I say, I, I had the soundtrack. Um, but actually, no, I think it's from just watching the film as much as I have. It's like with Tarantino movies where you associate songs that came out 20, 30 years before the film with the film. Like, yeah. it becomes culturally linked with something newer um, and then I think like Penguin Cafe Orchestra is just like Mary and Max to me, you know. Mm. Oh yeah, uh, and yeah. so many other um, songs in this this particular version coming up of uh, Sarah Sarah. Um, that's like oh, it's the Mary and Max version. Um, oh yeah, she's getting the uh, the dear John or the dear Jane from uh, her husband who has just disappeared and she hasn't realized he's been gone. But he's found himself a nice uh, sheep farmer or goat farmer, goat herder. Not sure. It's a soulmate that isn't her, so she's all on her own. Cattle prodder. And that sort of intense thing coming up, I think, for Max as well. Like he's had this quite. Sorry, I keep getting... <laughs> He's had this quite uh, storied existence that he just kind of floats through. Um, but now that he doesn't have Mary in his life, he's becoming this kind of, like, archetypical, obsessed old man, like, raging against the, uh, the ills of the world. Mm. People littering, things like that. And it comes to a head, I think, in the scene coming up. Um... Again, those props and that use of colour really make things stand out. It's it's not just a simple decision for the sake of it. It all adds. Yeah. To, it all ties together. They are leading into <laughs> one another's worlds. That's a very Wallace and Gromit moment. Is <laughs> the, like the, the idea of an in of the typewriter? The idea of an incometer. <laughs> running out of ink and flashing a warning light. I don't know if typewriters don't do that. I I'm pretty I mean, sure they don't. <laughs> As someone that used to once tried to figure out how, if you could refill the ink. Like, can you just put the tape in some ink? Is that how that works? <laughs> just pour an inkwell into the book. <laughs> da, da, da. It'll find its way. Nature finds a way. Is that enough? 
That's the that's the He's final straw. It's a southern moment. We're engrossed. I mean, it's yeah. an engrossing film. It's, uh, I'm surprised that this hasn't happened more often. To be honest, I was I was going into this. I'm like, oh, we're gonna keep like, we're gonna stop talking like quite regularly throughout this film. Yeah, but we've been good. We've been um, keeping it going. I will say this is quite hard to do because obviously, normally with director's commentary or like commentary on a film you worked on the film so it's all like <laughs> oh you remember sally ann was having an affair <laughs> or like remember when thingy almost burnt down the set T- you know? tell us more about sally ann what's what's <laughs> going on there i think for me it's it's the temptation to just go on ludicrously long tangents and i think my tangents so far have been kind of medium length so far you've done well Medium it helps, tangents. I think, that we have covered Adam Elliot quite a bit on the site. Mm. Um, We've just been telling our favourite Adam Elliot stories. anecdotes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's... He's one of our favourite people. <laughs> yeah. I will say that when it came to the book, he was one of the people that was really quick when it came to image permissions. Mm. And that elevated <laughs> so many people. Like, it's such a stressful part of the process. So when someone, like, sent back a form, like, that day, signed, oh, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> he is possibly one of the nicest people I've ever met. Mm. Quite easily. A, a dead ringer for Eddie Hitler. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is maybe one for the older squiggly uh, listeners, British squiggly listeners. But there was, I remember there were like some of the pictures of him and Barry at uh, Bradford. And he had a great sort of sense of gesticulation and posing for the camera that was very um, <laughs> reminiscent of Adrian Edmondson. Every inch of him's animated. He is. <laughs> the grime with the fly. <laughs> So yeah, Mary. Uh, Mary's in a state. Life has not been kind, um, but uh, she can just get into that package that's waiting for her. Everything's going to turn around, Uh-oh. but she sees the bottle of Valium first. Uh, so this was actually a pretty stressful moment. I remember in the film when I saw it for the first time, because um, I, again. I knew Adam Elliott's short filmmaking. I didn't know what direction he would take, you know, a story with a longer form feature. Is he going to be the kind of writer, director, who would actually kill the hero or kill one of the the heroes? Um, And it's certainly not looking good. She's dangling or about to dangle Mm. from... uh, This is the first cue of crying. Well, yes, you you didn't have the uh, the service that Pritpan provided me with, <laughs> <laughs> in which the ending was given, <laughs> and you knew which characters were going to be safe and which ones weren't. Oh yeah, we've just a little sort of uh, cherry on top. We've just seen a little uh, cross section that she um, 
unbeknownst to herself, is pregnant, and she's just swallowed a big thing of pills uh, and is about to top herself. She's pregnant with a tiny little old man. (laughs) It's a beautifully animated sequence here. It's being sort of tormented by these framed photographs in this kind of choreographed dance of torment around her. This is such an interesting version of this song because it's a generally upbeat song or a generally quite pleasant song. The orchestration is actually quite upbeat, but there's this element of melodic dissonance in it that just gives it this sinister feeling to it. I think it's mainly that like piano business that kind of is at the root of it. It's like the ding, 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 ding. And that just makes it a creepy song. Well, the song itself... You know, what will be will be. It's quite... That can take you to dark places. It can be used in many ways. It's a bit like um, an inkblot test. Oh, but Mm. look who saved the day. Is the um, agoraphobic neighbour. And he chose the right moment to get over his fear. Agoraphobic. Hmm? Agoraphobic. Oh, yeah. Um... We're not laughing at homophobia. That's a reference to the film. Um, <laughs> well, they all know. They've seen it. <laughs> we hope. Well, so you don't said, get uh, the joke. Hmm? If you don't watch the film, you don't get the joke. That's them apples. There you go. Um, Peace offering. I remember, uh, I think one of the deleted scenes um, is that the old man who saves her life, having conquered his own fear of being outside... Um, I think originally, as he was going to head back to his house, he immediately gets hit by a truck. I'm glad he did And I think he that. changed it to like just nearly getting hit by the truck. I, 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 I'm, I'm happy with that change. Even the man outside my apartment who litters. When I was young, I wanted to be... So, as an independent filmmaker, and given the position that this film has in the world... They're making the use of that nude puppet, aren't they? Uh, yeah. the, like it was scrotum's the exact same shape as his ear. <laughs> <laughs> looks like a coat hanger. There's a quote for if they ever re-release it. <laughs> scrotum, just like his um, Sorry, you were saying? Yeah, well, this film's such a, a special place in, in, in the heart of animators, but also people outside animation who watch this film, and they're just absolutely... Uh, amazed by by the power of animation and the power of Adam Elliott as a director and it does it does baffle me that that the cash didn't come for the for the sequel i know the film was released in 2009 and it was difficult to make films back then recession all that sort of stuff however since then and now we've just had a i say just had a, we've had a we've had a fantastic half hour short from him but it does seem it does seem, always seems upsetting that we're still waiting for uh, another feature. Mm. I think he actually, um, he made reference to that um, in the book. I'll see if I can find it. Um, But I think that what happened was as soon as this film was done, any kind of funding that was available for a film like this disappeared. 
Mm. And he kind of got in right at the last moment. In Australia, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. The government changed. Yeah. Like the, and that like, happens. Like, the party changed. Um, and so, yeah, the degree to which, you know, there's arts funding available. Um, he did also, in this other interview I re- read, talk about, like, when uh, when this first when he first got the Oscar and he went round to lots of places when he was, I guess, thinking of Mary and Max and he sort of went round to lots of places to pitch ideas. He went to Pixar, I think, or Disney. Hmm. And it, he pitched a bunch of ideas and they were like, yeah, they're just not what we'd make here. No, I mean, so much of what will and won't get greenlit is so circumstantial and, you know, it's it's not even if an idea is good, it's if an idea lines up with, you know... And I think the sad... You know, a clement partnership. And I think the sad ma- fact of the matter is if unless you're working... If you're working independently from any of the major studios, trying to get that budget together is incredibly hard. Yeah. Mm. Um, and if you're working within a studio there are a lot of things you have to mm. be willing to flex on and it has to fit within their wheelhouse and he's just someone that wasn't willing to do that. We're heading towards the door here, guys. <laughs> yeah. And it's coming, it's coming. And I appreciate you trying to talk about something else, Laura Beth, because you, you want to avoid the waterworks. But Mary's just walking through the door here. They're about to meet for the first time. They've uh, reconciled. He's not. Uh, he's not answering back. It's not looking good. Very slow pan. And with a great big smile on his face, he has indeed passed away. Perhaps mere moments before she got there. This bit. Well, even though I knew it was coming, it did still pack a punch mm. it's it's unavoidable how fantastic this is even if you know the ending that's coming it, and you spend an hour and a half expecting the ending it's still an amazing piece of cinema mm. the scene sort of just before that's where he is reading the less le- the letter that um he's written her the last letter that we hear him write her um his kind of musings on life in that become a lot more uh, oh here we go <laughs> so this is the 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 bit that usually gets me she's looking up at the ceiling yeah and there are all the letters And we hear echoed his uh, his voice. It's a lovely shot of them both looking up with the smiles on their faces. Beautiful work. Yeah. So we got a little message on the uh, on the chat room here from uh, from Danny again. She starts snivelling for a bit in the lead up, but when she gasps and looks up and notices, she just falls apart. 
I love near misses. This is the perfect one. And then she goes, ah! <laughs> I mean, yeah. My thoughts exactly. Nice uh, quote at the end of the film. God gave us relatives. Thank God we can choose our friends. Oh, yeah, Ethel Mumford. Mm. Nice closing note to end on. So, back to the question that we were avoiding earlier on, just to avoid the waterworks. Are you all right, Laura? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, about when are we going to see more of this? When are we going to get some more out of Adam Elliot? Wouldn't it be wonderful? Let's start the campaign now. <laughs> I would, in a in a heartbeat, if he ever went to any kind of platform, you know, to generate funds, that kind of thing. I mean, plenty of far, far less accomplished uh, artists have done just that with no shame or reservations. I think people would flock to get another one of these off the ground. Hmm. Um, you also never know, I mean, what... It's, I mean, a half-hour stop-motion film, which he has, you know, made sense. Like, that's no small feat. No. And from that point on, one does wonder, could he make something of comparable length to this using those more independent means? Because I think he did prove that he could create something longer form, you know, a sort of half-hour-length thing, with quite minimal resources, comparatively speaking, and... It remains very engaging throughout. Um, I remember there's a sort of bit of business at the beginning of Ernie Biscuit. There's this kind of like slapstick sequence before the narration starts that I think kind of misrepresents the overall tone of the film. Once the narration starts, it, it just you're in the world of Adam Elliot and his wonderful characters, and once you're there, like he could be making it with you know pipe cleaners. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, yeah, yeah. tape and blue tack. Um, you know, the quality of it and you know, I I have a lot of appreciation for the artistry, but the the heart of it is the writing. I think he's kind of, you know, said in the past that he kind of considers like narration is almost a storytelling cheat or that people maybe are a bit snobby about it when it comes mm. to writing. But Lazy narration is like, okay, well, I, I can't be bothered to put the exposition in the story, so I'm just going to have a narrator come and take yeah. care of it. That's one thing. But his, the character of his narration, like the narrators are an important part of the films. Uh, in this film, it was Barry Humphreys. You got 14 um, seconds, Ben. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he did a wonderful job, and I think that... Um, Five. <laughs> four. <laughs> Three. Subscribe to the podcast. Steve, do you want to be the last, uh, get the last word in? Goodbye. There you go. <laughs> <laughs>